Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Have you ever thought about what you will inherit? Now that's not a fun thing to think about because inheritance usually involves the death of another, right? Some of you have already received inheritance. Some of you will pass on inheritance and we're all kind of in that boat somewhere in between or one or the other. It's interesting, as I was doing some research on inheritance uh, stories, that there's a homeless man who lived on the streets of Santa Cruz de la Sierra in Bolivia. And there were some police looking for him, and he fled the police because he thought they were trying to arrest him for his alcohol and drug habits. His name was Tomas Martinez. But really, the police were bringing him news that he was the heir of a $6 million inheritance. And the man disappeared without a trace, thinking the police were trying to get him. And they caused uh, the Bolivian newspapers in 2000 to speak of him as, quote, a new millionaire, paradoxically not knowing his fortune, end of quote. And that inheritance came to Mr. Martinez from his ex-wife of many years ago, who inherited the money herself from family members. And that unlucky man has never been found. So, you're him in this auditorium this morning, uh, go claim your inheritance. Um, If you're not, you probably have just as good a chance as anybody else in saying that you are. I don't know. I want to give you a message this morning called Inheritance. Uh, It has two parts here about being separated from your inheritance and being able to receive that inheritance. And so if you haven't yet, turn to Micah chapter 2. I want to do a little bit of review, though. Here this morning, in chapter 1, God lays out His cause against uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. And gives a sentence of destruction. And what God prophesied happened in around 722 B.C. And the northern kingdom of Israel, the people of that northern kingdom are no more. There is no trace of them. And uh, Samaria has simply become a place of, uh, of, of, of a dumping grounds and destruction. But also their uh, brothers and sisters in the southern kingdom of Judah would also face destruction that he speaks about in verses 8 through 16 of chapter 1. He talks about uh, their, their uh, he, he comes out with a, with a woe, a cry, a wailing, a howling like the jackals in the desert, a mourning like the owls, because there is a wound that is incurable in verse 9. There is something that has happened to Judah, their idolatry, they're turning away from God, that there is no reversing it is spread into Jerusalem, it has come even all the, up to the very gates of Jerusalem and because of that there would be two things that would happen. First of all, the Gentiles were not to gloat over what would happen to Judah, because what happens in, in God's destruction in Israel is a, is a picture here of future uh, judgment that will be received, but secondly there were some uh, 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 role Reversals. The cities that were strongholds in Israel would be dissolved. And what they were known for in being strong and powerful, they would be flipped upside down and they would uh, become places that are known for their weakness and for their vulnerabilities. And it's a very difficult passage for me personally to go through here and explain uh, here in our English Bibles. Not that I am a Hebrew scholar at any stretch, but understanding uh, what the words mean 
Uh, Micah uses several plays on words to show that the tables will be overturned for these places. And it leads us to the end of chapter 1, where there would be an exile. Some of the Assyrian takeover in the northern kingdom would spill over into the, into the, in the southern kingdom, and their children, the children who they were to delight in, would be taken captive, in verse 16, and they would be gone into exile. And so there would be an assigned confinement. It's a sad situation, never had to happen. And it brings us to the second part of this very first message here of Micah. And it begins in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It will continue next week in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And it will close with hope in verses 12 through 13. Then he begins his second sermon in chapter 3. This is still part of his first message against Israel. Micah 2, verses 1 through five, And just to give you a summary here of what happens here, it's in Micah 2 verses 1 through 5 that the prophet gives the basis for the crisis that Judah will face in the future collapse of the nation. It is not the imperialism of an enemy who is growing called Assyria that this ultimately happens. It is not the fortunes of just some, some blind uh, chance and destiny that brought the house of Israel to this stage. It was her disobedience to God. Now, a secular historian would look through the the history books and be able to say, yeah, uh, Israel was taken by the Assyrians, and and it happened because of this, this, and this. And they might have a human perspective of it, but in the Old Testament, Micah here gives us God's perspective, and that's what we need this morning. Because the prophetic view of history is very different from a view without God. The prophets would frequently recall the terms of the covenant God made with Moses that promised blessing for the people if they responded rightly to the terms and cursing if they do not. And what was happening here in the events of the 8th century, the 700s B.C., um, had produced really two main classes of people. There is a, 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 uh, a growing, uh, affluent group And then there was a very poor class that was suffering at the hands of the rich. And Micah turns to the very powerful ruling classes and he pictures the intensity that they are uh, um, uh, dreaming about, that they are uh, acting on to defraud the poor and become richer at the expense of the lesser fortunate. In verse 1, he pictures them lying awake at night, devising their plans. At the first light of day, they are putting their, their schemes into action because it was in their power. They seem to have a hand in all the structures of society, so they were manipulating perhaps courts and other things in order to seize the poor land. They seem to have a free hand. They, they were, uh, uh, if you looked at it from the perspective of, a, of someone who was oppressed, it seemed like they were getting away with it. They coveted the houses of land and lands of those who couldn't adequately defend themselves in that society. And so there is a judgment in verses 1 through 5 of Micah chapter 2, and it's against a certain group of wealthy men who've devised wicked schemes at night to seize houses and lands from unsuspecting farmers. And their slogan, their mantra is, Might makes right. But their plots will boomerang. 
What they reap will sow, and again the tables will be turned. Their own lands will be snatched from them by the Assyrians. So that's the general teaching of verses 1 through 5. And so their oppressive scheming is going to be outmatched by a divine plan for justice. Our God is a God of justice. Look at verse 1. Woe to them. Woe to them. It's a Hebrew word, oi. It's used in funeral laments. And when something in Scripture is pronounced as a woe, as Jesus does in the Gospels, woe unto the scribes and Pharisees, it is a death pronouncement. They're as good as dead. It's used in funeral dirges. So I want you to see this morning that the very first point in this passage is there is an evil scheme in verse 1. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When they go to bed, their minds are worrying with activity. They are spinning with activity. They can't even rest until they have planned their evil for the next day. Their evil is what dominates their thinking. There are two words here used for uh, evil in our passage. The words iniquity and evil in that very first sentence. Iniquity here is the idea of abuse of power. Abuse of power. Often resulting in many um, injustices that occurred. And evil refers to things that are very simply wicked in God's eyes. These wealthy oppressors are so filled with greed that they're plotting their next move even before they get out of bed in the morning. By the way, that is something the Lord hates. In Proverbs 6.18, the abominations that the Lord hates, the wicked things He hates, one of them is a heart or a mind that is devising wicked plans. Feet that are swift to shed innocent blood. Uh, But... The psalmist says in Psalm 63, verse 6, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. That wasn't even the first thing that was crossing their mind. And as soon as daylight would come, they would carry out their evil plans to increase their riches at the expense of the poor. They controlled the power structures. They believed that might makes right. And the very ease which they did what was wrong shows how evil their manipulations were. Amos condemns these same people in Amos 8. Um, Money is their God, and the more they had, the more they wanted. Isaiah and Isaiah 5 says, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. They're just gobbling up property in oppressive ways. There is a scheme. The end of verse 1, it says, When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. You know, you really don't know how evil your heart is until you've been given power. You really don't know how nasty you can be until you start winning board games. Um, People didn't know how nasty Saul's heart was until Saul became king. And he abuses his power. And that's a warning to us 
here, as God gives us more responsibility and warning, there is a burden on serving rather than using that power for our own benefit. So there's an evil scheme. Secondly, if you look in verse 2, there is an evil strike. There's an evil strike. So like all sin, it starts in the heart, doesn't it? It starts in the heart and it goes to action. You can see a progression, in fact, in verse 2. It says, and they covet fields. And they take them by violence. So they're seizing. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. There is an evil strike. That word covet means to desire wrongfully, inordinately, without due regard for the rights of others. So they covet fields. And then it says they take or they seize, they capture. That word means to snatch away violently from the owner by a stronger party. Fields, they're a man's livelihood and freedom in that age. Some of you remember the old musical Oklahoma. And one of the songs is about the land. Maybe you remember it. Because that was people's livelihood. Before currency and liquid assets, uh, you didn't go to the bank and, and, and you know withdraw a hundred dollars. Uh, land was what your power was, and, and we could even see that here in our own our own county with with Henry Knox. Um, he was a man who was very very wealthy in land. He was land rich, but he, from what they say, really didn't have a lot of money. He had a lot of land. And uh, he, the only way he could get money, really, was to sell quite a bit of those uh, plots of land away. But fields were a man's livelihood. You inherited the land from your father, who got it from his grandfather, who got it from his great-grandfather, and you'd pass it on to your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So if your land was taken away, it didn't affect you, it affected future generations. Not only that, but in numbers, in, uh, predicted in numbers, and then happening in Joshua, God himself had allotted out that land to the tribes. He had portioned it out. And you can imagine, not only to the tribes, but also to the individual families within those tribes. So they have captured that thinking, that coveting, turns into an action, capturing, and then there is a consuming, a consuming. He says at the end of verse 2, So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. Oppress means to take it away forcefully. They could have done it by extortion, uh, outright force, through courts, corrupt courts, probably kangaroo courts. Um, they could have done it like what happens today with payday loans. And some of these places that charge ridiculous interest and prey upon um, um, people in, in, in poor situations. And if a mispayment was made, and they could quickly foreclose on that property permanently. Oh, sure, I'll let you. You need this? I'll, I'll loan that to you. And then they can't make a payment. And that was their way to take that poor victim's inheritance. According to covenant law, it was supposed to remain in the family. Leviticus 25.23 says it ultimately belonged to the covenant Lord. Yet these land barons were cheating others out of their homes and landed property. I'll give you a good instance of this that happened in the northern kingdom that probably trickled down in the southern kingdom. Ahab, right? Ahab. Ahab looked out of his castle one day and he saw this field over here, a nice vineyard. Because I want that vineyard. And you've got to give Ahab some credit. He walks to Naboth and he offers him a price for it. Naboth says, I can't sell. This, is, this has been given to me by God. This is my family. He doesn't sell it. So what does Ahab do? He sulks, he pouts. And then Jezebel says, you know, you can get that property. 
And what did they do to Naboth? There's a false accusation made against Naboth. They have a kangaroo court for Naboth. And uh, Naboth is killed at the verdict of this court. And guess who gets the property Ahab? Really, perfect picture of this. The, the little businessman here, Naboth, uh, uh, he's abused by the power of the, of the big people. And, and their profit trumps ethics. Now listen, I am all for a free market society. But listen... A free market society is not our hope. Alright? And uh, there are many vices of a free market society, and one which is most obvious is greed. You saw a little bit of that in the Industrial Revolution of the years gone by, and the abuse of child labor, the abuse of the bosses and the workers, and then we've kind of taken it the other way here, and now kids can't work ever at all. And now we have unions that, you know, never can get any job done, right? Uh, But there's a reason that those came into being. Because there were abuses. So because of greed, there was a coveting, there was a capturing, there was a a consuming. I want you to see here that not only uh, is there an evil scheme and an evil strike here, but there is a God who is still in control. Because look what happens here. Verse 3. Therefore, thus saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord. Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. There is a just settlement. Therefore, because of the sins that were mentioned before, the influential and wealthy classes of society, instead of using their wealth to, 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 to share and to, and to serve, uh, they, they, were, they were using it to hoard, and divine judgment was going to fall. Here's an irony in this passage here. In verse 1, what are the evil people doing? They're devising plans on their bed, right? There's a play on words here that is not so obvious in the English language, but in verse 3, you can kind of see it. Behold, against this family do I devise an evil. Now, there are all kinds of things in man's wicked imaginations that he can do for evil, aren't there? But when God will turn evil against them with an almighty, all-knowing mind, a wise mind, you can be sure that they will receive what they deserve. Now the Lord is planning against His people. Proverbs 19.21 talks about there's many plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. They woke up that morning with all kinds of plans of what they were going to do. The prophet. God had already had a plan. He devised. That disaster he's probably referring to was that Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. Um, there in the northern kingdom and later on in 701 B.C. with the southern kingdom. And they would not be able to get themselves out of it. It's a just settlement. He says, uh, therefore, uh, this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks. There's no way to, to get out of this. It's going to happen. It is unavoidable. You are going to receive it. Justice will be served. And then he says, Neither shall you go haughtily. It would be undignified. You know, 
Here they were before, probably with their nose in the air, walking around like this because they were the, they were the cream of society. They owned this and that, and they, and they were greedy, and they were the oppressors. And now they're going to have a yoke around their neck, and their head's going to be bowed low. So they're undignified. They couldn't remove their necks. They would be unable to hold their heads high among the nations. An arrogant neck would now be bowed in humiliation like oxen yoked by their master. And then you see an undermining here. An undermining, he says, um, for this time is evil. In that day, verse 4, shall one take up a parable or a taunt against you and lament with a doleful lamentation and say, we be utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me, turning away yet divided our fields? Perhaps that was something a poor man said when his fields were being taken away by the wealthy oppressor. And now who's saying the wealthy oppressor? There's going to be personal servitude. They're going to lose their own. Uh, they're going to lose their land. There will be mocking as they take fields from the poor, defenseless fellow Israelites. So the tyrant Assyrians, when they come, are going to take their stuff. They're going to be removed from their land with with uh, 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 yokes around their necks. Their property is going to be seized and divided up by the enemy. They, the landowners, will now be the oppressed. And the enemy of God, Assyria, will play the role of the land barons and will mock them with these words. They ruined others, now the tables are turned. The enemy will divide up their land. Isaiah 33.1 says, Woe to you who plundered. You will be plundered. He says, You who deal treacherously. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. They seize the fields of their helpless victims. God's going to take those fields and turn them over to their enemies. All in fulfillment of Deuteronomy, their covenant disobedience. So there is a just settlement that is, hap- that is going to happen. But I want you to see, fourthly here, there is a just separation. Verse 5. There's a removal. Verse 5, though, says, Therefore, thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation or the assembly of the Lord. This is pretty powerful and serious here. Here's the idea. Just as in the promised land, God had divided out the land and give it to the tribes. He says there will be coming a day, a future day, when Yahweh redistributes the land in the future. And these people will not be there. They will not be represented in the future, assembling His presence. My interpretation of scriptures, I see this as a part of the millennium. You see, Yahweh, the owner of the land, he had numbers in Joshua. He had surveyed out the land. He had the priests of Israel cast lots. He had distributed it to the people according to the lots. And he promised this land as an internal, eternal inheritance through Abraham. But a promise of land as an eternal inheritance is not a promise of permanent occupation of that land. And when Israel sins, they were not guaranteed occupation of that land. Micah knows that Yahweh is going to allow Assyria to take it because he never based their occupation of the land on their obedience. 
He does know that it would be given back one day in the future to a remnant. And one day in the future, and I don't believe this has happened yet, Yahweh will redistribute the land. But notice, they will, verse 5, not share in it. He will gather a remnant who will be restored, and the new covenant He will make with Israel. And you see the the, uh, seriousness, the destiny of these evil people. God will not number them among the new covenant distribution. It's a picture of eternal death. And this passage shows us a couple things. It shows us that to the presumptuous, those who presume upon God, who act as if He's not there, who do their own thing, God pronounces separation from His life. Jesus talks about how one day He will separate the goats from the sheep. In the spiritual application. He will separate the weeds from the wheat. Listen. How does all this happen here? It's hard for us to make direct connections to our day here. But I'll tell you what. There is a common thread that America shares here. And it's the idea of covetousness, isn't it? And greed. When the dollar becomes the bottom line, you are out of sync and in sin with God's word. And you're wrong. It can never be the ultimate bottom line. Yes, make a profit in your business, but it is never the ultimate. You have crossed into what God has commanded against, covetousness. Sin cannot meet the holiness of God and stand. Verse 5. That's why Christ had to come into this world. One of the things, covetousness. One man writes and travels about the world. I've seen idols ranging from crudely carved pieces of wood, worshipped in the open air, to elegant images housed in beautiful temples. The material, workmanship, and location is not what matters, but the concept and purpose represented. You may say you have never made an idol, neither have you worshipped one. Upon reflection, is this really the case? Intellect can become an idol as you sit in judgment upon God, His Word, and His purposes in history. Your body may be an idol if you are more concerned about physical appearance and health than you are about your inner spiritual nature. Business or wealth can come before God and still be your idol. Another person may be your idol as you pattern your life after him or her rather than after God and His will. Achieving your own goals. Become your God if they are more important than following God's plan for your life. Popularity is your idol if you're more interested in being accepted by other people than by God. The mores of society become your idol if you care more about fitting in than you do about living by God's eternal principles of righteousness. It is folly to bow before these and other idols of this age and ignore the abiding, the age-abiding will and way of God. God, Herschel Hobbes. I'd like you to go with me here for a couple minutes here to James 1. James 1. That oppression started in their minds, in their hearts. In James chapter 1, Jesus is mentioned. It's out of the the heart that uh, evil proceeds. In James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings a baby called sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And it happens in Romans 1, verses eight and uh, verses 28 and 29, with a downward spiral. And listen. 
Covetousness has tremendous evil ramifications. And when sometimes we kind of uh, uh, sugarcoat it and just call it the American dream. The American dream needs to be crucified. It's nothing but covetousness and trying to find satisfaction outside of God, which God hates. It's idolatry, it is sin, and it is a fake good news. And the end of covetousness is the stench of hell, Jesus says in Luke 12, about the man who lived only to build bigger and better barns. In fact, when Paul writes Corinthians, one of the things he lists is those who will not inherit the kingdom of God is covetousness. And go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. There's a reason this is one of God's original commandments, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 5, in fact, it's the very last commandment he lists. Ephesians 5 verse 3 through 5 says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any, what? Inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It was true of Israel. It's true of His church. Colossians uh, wrote down the wrong reference, but Colossians defines covetousness as idolatry. The book of Colossians. So, here's the, here's the principle we need to understand is that to the presumptuous, God pronounces separation from His life. But there's good news. There is hope. Because at the end of verse 5 of Micah 2, there is a righteous remnant who will have a future hope. You see, there is an assembly of Israel in that day in the future. And if there is a day when Yahweh will exclude the wicked, Israelites, from his inheritance that he gives, then it means that there is also a day when he is with the assembly that he does give his inheritance to the righteous. And the spiritual application of this to us is that to the repentant, the gospel promises life in him. There's a man named Josh who wasn't very close to his grandfather. Um, uh, but his grandfather had always had a special spot in his heart for his grandson. He hadn't seen his grandson in years before his death, around 2007. But Josh was named the heir of what remained of his grandfather's estate, which included a 36-acre island and 80 acres of farmland. But there's also something unexpected in the will. In the will, there was a detailed list of expensive antique jewelry and loose gems contained, quote, in the thermos. There is no indication where this portion of Josh's inheritance was. But Josh's mother, Susan, always remembered her father, Josh's grandfather, talking about his treasure island that he had when his child uh, that, that she remembered as a child his treasure island and so probably that treasure was buried on that 36 acre island and it hasn't been found yet 
And, um, and uh, so, so there's a hidden thermos of precious gems uh, that is out there. Nobody's found it yet. On the island's 36 acres. I mean, if we had something like that promised to us, we'd go looking for it, right? But I want to tell you, we have something that is sure. We have a sure inheritance in the gospel. You see, Jesus was the one who became cut off from his people in our place. Isaiah 53. And he offers amnesty and pardon for you and I to switch places with him and be restored. And receive the inheritance he inherited at the hand of his father. In fact, that's what Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son is all about. A man who squandered his father's inheritance and land. And in the gospel, we have a father through Jesus who welcomes us back. It's not fair. It's not fair. But that's why it's mercy and grace. You see, Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 5 that there are a people who will inherit the earth. In 1 Corinthians 6, when he lists those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says, but such were some of you, and you've been changed, so you will inherit the kingdom of God. We share in the spiritual promises of the new covenant, and we're made joint heirs of the riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. Now listen to these verses. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and if, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Galatians 3.29 And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 4.1 Now I say that the heir, excuse me, let me see, Galatians 4.7 Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Ephesians 3.6 That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. That's a new covenant promise, a spiritual promises. Titus 3.7 That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hebrews 9.15 And for this reason He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And 1 Peter 1 verse 4, 114, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And he closes the book of Revelation near the end with Revelation 21, 7, saying, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. See, the folly... To bow before the things of covetousness that these people did resulted in their separation from the life of God. But the joy of the gospel is that to the repentant, the gospel promises life in him and something far better than any physical land, an eternal inheritance with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.